Hello and welcome to HIV Matters Podcast. My name is Michelle Croston and as your host I will be facilitating interesting conversations with leading experts in the field of HIV care. The conversations will be centred around exploring ways to improve quality of life for people living with HIV. Throughout my career I've always had a keen interest in any initiatives to improve outcomes for people living with HIV which has led me to work with a variety of different organisations, with different healthcare professionals and activists. Here at HIV Matters, we hope to use our unique perspectives and platforms to improve knowledge and understanding with regards to HIV. In order to do this, we will engage in conversations with people living with HIV, people who have worked in the HIV sector, and sometimes a mixture of both. We hope you enjoy the episode and if you have any ideas or questions on this or future episodes, please contact us at hello at hivmatters.co.uk. You can also follow us on Instagram at hivmatterspodcast or visit our website at www.hivmatterspodcast.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and comment on our show. It gives me great pleasure to introduce our HIV Matters podcast guest today. I've been a huge fan of this lady's work for many years, so I was blown away when she accepted my invitation to come to speak to us on the HIV Matters podcast. Alice has worked as an international gender and health issues researcher for over 30 years. She's also a trainer, writer and activist in this subject area. Alice obtained a PhD from Cambridge University, which led her to work in rural areas of East, Southern and West Africa for over several years, and she developed an international development consultation during this period. Alice has been on the board of directors and former international chair of the community of women living with HIV and AIDS. She's also been a leading former member of the UK Sexual and Reproductive Health and Rights Network, She's also sat on the UNAIDS Global Dialogue Platform for Women Living with HIV and is a former co-founder and patron of the SOFIA Forum. Alice has many attributes and accolades with regards to the work that she's done around women living with HIV. She's Alice is currently the founding director of the Chair of Trustees for the Salamander Trust. I'm hugely mindful that I've not done Alice's bio any form of justice and I'm hoping throughout our podcast today you will see the phenomenal work that Alice does. I will also provide you with Alice's full bio in our show descriptions. I'm just super excited and can't wait to start our conversation with Alice today. Today I'm being joined on the HIV Matters podcast by Alice Wellborn. Alice, I'm delighted that you have agreed to be part of the show. I'm really honoured that you chose to um, spend some time with me to talk about some issues that I know we are both very passionate about. I first came across your work after I'd published an article in HIV Nursing. Well, it probably wasn't the first time I came across your work, but it was the first time that we managed to to connect and have a, a conversation about that. And obviously, we're both really passionate about um, women and supporting women with their quality of life. So one of the work that you kindly sent to me as a result of kind of that article was um, one of the reports that you was involved in called Building a Safe House on Firm Ground, Key Findings from a Global Values and Preference Survey. 
I'll pop the link to that in the show descriptions. Now, for me, this was work that I was familiar with, but I think it's probably worth highlighting for our listeners a little bit more about the project that you was involved in, if you don't mind, Alice. Oh, well, thank you so much, Michelle, first of all, for inviting me. It's a real pleasure and privilege to be invited to take part in your podcast series. So, yes, Building a Safe House on Firm Ground. This was a report which we were commissioned by WHO, Department of Reproductive Health and Research, to write based on a a global survey which we conducted on the values and preferences of women living with HIV in relation to our sexual and reproductive health and rights. And so we conducted that research during, I think it was 2014, and it was an online survey which we developed. We had a, a global reference group of amazing women living with HIV in, in all their diversity from around the world who helped us um, shape the content of the survey and the questions. And on purpose, we made it a survey which was forward thinking and vision focused and assets based because often surveys themselves can actually be quite distressing and, and triggering in many ways. And we really wanted to make sure that this was a a survey which women would feel comfortable contributing to and also give them an opportunity to to express what they felt needed to happen and what advice they would give to policymakers. So we conducted that survey and we had over 900 online uh, respondents from over 90 countries. Uh, it was translated by volunteers into, I think altogether we used, we had seven different languages online languages which was amazing and then we wrote it all up and we submitted it back to WHO and the idea was that it would help to inform an updated version of the WHO guideline on sex and reproductive health of women living with HIV but in fact in the end a whole new consolidated guideline was published in 2017 and what was really wonderful for us about it was that the guideline development committee really made use of our findings from the survey so you can see if if you go online and look at the guideline you can see a little image of a safe house that we had on the front cover of our report all the way through the guideline and references to our findings from our values and preferences survey throughout the guideline. And this was really a first for WHO to have such a participatory approach to creating the values and preferences survey. And Dr. Tedros from WHO has, yeah, he praised our process on this and said he really felt that this should be a useful template for anybody developing a values and preferences survey. So yeah, so that was that was the process. We we also after the guideline was published, we went on to develop a couple of web annexes related to the guideline. All the way through the survey, Violence Against Women got mentioned repeatedly by women and mental health issues. I can talk more about them in a minute if you want. But after the guideline was developed, we realised that it's one thing having a guideline, but it can often just sit on the shelf and gather dust. So we also developed a web annex where we created an implementation checklist 
so that any women living with HIV in any country could take the guideline and use it to assess where their own national policies and practices were in their own country and compare those against what was recommended in the guideline and then work with relevant staff in in ministries, relevant ministries. We use a sort of traffic light approach to see what's already going well what needs improvement and what's in dire need of more urgent change. And we piloted that implementation checklist with colleagues in Kenya, an organization in Kenya called WAFAC. And they also actually made use of it in three counties in Kenya. And they found it really, really informative. And in fact, the health workers in one of the counties said, you're the people we've been waiting for. Here's an empty desk. Come and work with us. We really appreciate having you women living with HIV sitting here in our health center, helping us to support us to provide the best service for women living with HIV. So that was really encouraging. Um, And then we also developed another web annex for the guideline, which is based on case studies, including that one from Kenya and including others from Ukraine and what they've done there around sex and reproductive health and rights of women living with HIV. And also from the Trans Law Center in California, what they have done there. And also a young woman called Lorangelis in Puerto Rico has done amazing stuff around SRHR there. So yeah, very, very interesting stuff to read. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, sh- for sharing that great piece of work and kind of the impact of that work. There's so many things to kind of that I was reflecting on while you were speaking, Alice. And also, you know, you mentioned about the ethics around research and how sometimes research can be triggering and how you wanted the research to be different and it was beautiful how that was picked up um, by the WHO as a as kind of um, a template for how research should be um, undertaken in the future as well. I'm just wondering with, with that in mind are there any other thoughts about women living with HIV engaging in, in research and maybe anything that any researchers listening may want to be mindful of? Uh, yes, that's really great. That's really important, the point that you brought up about collaborative research or co-participation in research. And this was one of the recommendations from the guideline, recommendation section six, which, and we were naive enough to suppose, oh, great, now we've got it in the guideline. This is what's going to happen in future. And of course, the sad reality is that there's often such a huge gap between global guidelines and what actually happens in practice. And in fact, over the last few years, we've been tracking the extent to which women living with HIV have been involved as co-authors, co-researchers, co-presenters in the abstract-driven tracks in the international AIDS conferences. And in fact, the findings are just really shockingly low. And we just feel so disappointed about this because again and again and again, we can see how there's just such a gulf between very top-down, very biomedical, academic-driven or health policy-driven policies and programs and practices in countries, and what actually we as women living with HIV, actually what our own priorities are and what we want. And often people talk about what people's needs are, but in fact, when policies and programs talk about people's needs, actually what they mean is what they think we need Whereas, in fact, what we actually need, our own priorities, are often not even asked or not even considered. 
and there's such a gulf there and it's it just would seem to be a no-brainer that actually it's really important to bring those most affected by an issue whether it's women living with HIV or whoever healthcare professionals or policy creators or researchers are investigating that actually their greatest asset is us and actually listening to us and involving us throughout the process as co-developers of the actual research questions. I mean, if I could give a couple of examples, there was an article that came out two or three years ago from one country to say something like, women in general, if they're married, they have problems with condom negotiation. And that this was kind of presented as if it was a new, curious fact. And I mean, to us reading that, that was just so obvious. Or, for example, it was only relatively recently that there was an evidence base that said that alcohol use can be affected with with, um, violence against women. And that's a no-brainer that for a lot of people, alcohol use can lead to aggressive behavior. And yet the evidence base wasn't there. There's what we know as a given, but there isn't necessarily a formal evidence base for it. And unfortunately, because we're now so focused on evidence-driven or evidence-based policies, we often forget that actually absence of evidence doesn't equate with evidence of absence. And unfortunately, the basic wisdom and lived experience of us as women living with HIV, if we're not involved in co-creation of research, often the questions which are getting asked are not the right questions. And the knowledge and experience which we can contribute to good policy and good practice, which will work for us and be efficient for us, just isn't there. And then often what happens is that actually when things don't go as policymakers or programmers have planned, we actually get shamed and blamed for not turning up to clinic or so-called failure to adhere or for being defaulters or whatever, which is all very shaming and, and blaming language, or we get accused of how dare you have sex or how dare you get pregnant or how dare you transmit HIV to your babies without actually realizing that actually the system is set up for women to fail and to be blamed. Thank you, thank you so much for, for sharing that, Alice. I know it's something that um, I, I've heard you speak about before and I just thought it was really important for our HIV Matters listeners to, to hear, really. And also, it just when I was listening to you then, it reminded me of um, something that I'd, I'd seen on Twitter and it was a picture of these hard-to-reach groups, but actually it's about the services. They were just not designed for the people um, that we wanted to provide care for. So actually, you're right. Why would we not tap into this amazing resource uh, and get those lived experience to help shape services, research, and you know, do what matters to people rather than what we think matters? So thank you so much for sharing that for our listeners. Uh, yeah, if I could just pick up on that. I mean, that very phrase, hard to reach groups, it, it, it's a, a phrase which produces hollow laughter from those of us who've been involved in this work because hard to reach are the women whom I am in constant contact with around the world. They're not hard to reach. The challenge is that often researchers, policymakers, donors, etc., just actually haven't made the effort to try to reach them or to develop a relationship with them or to develop trust. So much of this is down to relationships building and and building a sense of trust. And sadly, that is often just not something which ever gets taught anywhere along the line. 
and yet it's fundamental. And just to add also, Sylvia Petretti, my colleague at Positively UK, and I, I know you're planning to talk with her at some stage, they've done some fantastic co-production around research and they've created a beautiful film with Imperial College, which is available online, which I would really encourage listeners to take a look at if, if you'd like to and to listen into Sylvia's podcast. I'm sure she'll talk about that. No, thank you, Alice. We will definitely make sure we pop the link to that in the show descriptions below. And yeah, I when I hear that word hard to reach, it does make me smile for the wrong reasons. Because again, I think working with younger people, we, we say they don't show up, but they just they show up in different places. Yeah. So it's kind of meeting people where they are, not where we want them to be. Exactly. Just to go back to the report, and again, I could um, speak to you for hours on this um, these subjects, but I think one of the, the key things that really hit me when reading the Building a Safe House on Firm Ground report, and I know this is something that we've mentioned in discussions together, was this kind of statistic about 89% of women who reported in the optional section of the gender-based violence report who, who'd experienced violence or fear of violence, but also what kind of really made my heart sink, Alice, is the fact that they'd reported violence in healthcare settings. So I'm just wondering if you'd be able to speak on both of those points, the disproportion of women experiencing violence and also violence in healthcare settings as well, please. Sure. As you mentioned, 89% of women who responded to the optional section on violence against women reported that they experienced violence or fear of violence. But in fact, violence actually came up all the way through the survey in the various different sections as well as in the mandatory section. So it was basically an ongoing refrain throughout the response to the survey. And we were really pleased also that the Guideline Development Committee referred to violence against women throughout the guideline because it is such a critical issue which it's basically the elephant in the room so often for women. So a few years back, WHO did a global uh, multi-country study around uh, violence against women and came out with some pretty shocking statistics about the overall prevalence of violence around the world. And it also recognized the strong relationship between violence against women and increased vulnerability to HIV by a factor of one and a half and not only to HIV, but, but other STIs. What also came out very clearly from our study was not only that quite a few women had already experienced intimate partner violence before diagnosis, but also that on diagnosis, either that uh, intimate partner violence against them increased, or for some women it actually started on diagnosis. And this is something which really still isn't taken on board at all in global policies. They just assume that there's somehow a level playing field and that it's perfectly okay for women to come to a clinic to access their medication, to stand in queue in public so that everybody knows what they're there for. And the whole thing around intimate partner violence just isn't adequately or isn't recognized at all in the context of HIV. 
I mean, the thing is that globally, most women are still diagnosed with HIV on pregnancy. Once they go to antenatal clinic for the first time, basically, it's pretty much mandatory for them to have an HIV test. And we can argue about the pros and cons of, of it being essentially mandatory, but that's that's what it is, that they can't really have access any antenatal care without having that HIV test. But we already know, quite apart from HIV, that pregnancy is a time of starting or increased intimate partner violence for many women. So then you add HIV to the mix. And because men aren't getting tested at the same time, it's the women who are going there getting tested and either coming home and having to, to think, well, do I dare tell my partner or not that I've been diagnosed with HIV? Or sometimes the health clinic discloses the woman's status to her partner or insists that she brings him with her. It's just supposedly to help her take medication, but actually also to try to get him tested. And it can just be such a massive flashpoint for women experiencing this. And it just isn't something that's addressed. And this in itself, therefore, is actually an example of structural violence in the healthcare setting because the way in which the woman gets treated automatically turns her into someone who's being bad and behaving badly and not doing what she's told. And that's before you even add in, in, in many countries that have been forced or coerced sterilization of women so that once they have given birth to the baby, they've basically been sterilized. A classic example is from Namibia, where in a workshop coordinated by women in Namibia, the Namibia Women's Health Network and International Community of Women Living with HIV, a number of women just started to mention that, that they had been sterilized. And, and other women said, oh, yes, well, that happened to us as well. And then there was a show of hands. And to everyone's horror, most of the women discovered that they had basically been cursed to sign papers as they were on a trolley going into the operating theatre to have a cesarean section to give birth to their baby. And only later, when they came back to try to access contraceptives, were they told by the nurse or whoever, oh, well, what are you doing here? You've been sterilised. And they were incredibly courageous women. They took the Namibia government to court. So finally, the women won. But it was just such a distressing, it just should never have happened. And there's forced and coerced sterilization still going on in some countries. So, you know, this is structural violence writ, writ large, and, and we know it happens to women who are Roma women, for example, or women from other ethnic minorities or women with physical disabilities, but it shouldn't happen to, to anyone. And, yeah, so, but this is not something which is ever talked about in relation to our sex and reproductive health and rights. Thank you for sharing that with our listeners, Alice, because, again, it was something that I naively not come across until having discussions with yourself and um, Angelina about these issues. And it, it's horrific to think that people would would do that in a, a position of healthcare that they would, you know, it, it just, I can't begin to tell you how, it. I can't even wrap my mind around how wrong that is on lots of different levels. If I could just add another dimension to, to structural violence, Michelle, we're all familiar with what's going on in the States 
around abortion and Roe v. Wade being overturned and how basically women's rights to bodily autonomy are being fundamentally challenged there and how this has sent shockwaves around the world with other governments questioning their policies around abortion and maybe thinking, okay, right now here's an opportunity for us to start to outlaw women's rights to bodily autonomy in relation to abortion. And to be honest, the whole global policy around prevention of mother-to-child transmission, as it's called, PMTCT or EMTCT, even worse, elimination of mother-to-child transmission, is is essentially also a reflection of lack of women's rights to bodily autonomy in the sense that, and one of the great things that we were also delighted with the WHO guideline that I was mentioning was that we actually said, well, for a start, we should stop calling it mother-to-child transmission. If we're going to call it anything, let's call it vertical transmission and talk about ending vertical transmission. But more importantly than that even, let's actually talk first and foremost about women's rights to perinatal care and women's rights to full sex and reproductive health across the pregnancy journey, as Angelina so eloquently talks about it. And let's talk about ensuring SRHR across pregnancy. Let's let's talk about ESRHR instead of EMTCT or PMTCT. Because first and foremost, if we're to give the woman full care, respect and support across her own pregnancy journey, then she is best placed to do the best for her baby. Because nobody wants that baby to be born safe and well more than that woman. And yet the way in which the whole of policy and programs are stacked is turning the woman into this evil vector and vessel of disease instead of actually and so much of policy is focused on oh we must stop hiv transmission to babies to the innocent babies instead of of actually saying let's support this woman in this incredibly vulnerable time in her life to do the best that she wants to do in supporting herself looking after herself making sure she's safe and well as an intrinsic right And then also that will be supporting her to support her baby. And, you know, it's it's just a kind of fundamental thing around her own right to bodily autonomy, her own happiness, health and safety. And yet global policy just completely misses out on all of that and just completely focuses on this biomedical transmission issue. And I speak from personal experience here because I was diagnosed when I was expecting a baby and that was over 30 years ago. And in those days, sadly, there was no treatment and I was completely grief stricken by the the dual shock of the baby and uh, the diagnosis for me and the, the prospect of my baby dying. And in those days, I was advised to have a medical termination, which I did have. But all the way through, I was just given so much care and support from the medical team, from my GP and from the the obstetrician. And I was just incredibly fortunate because I was given that best care. And I know that I was very privileged, but I sh- it shouldn't have been a privilege. It should be that that should be the way for everybody that everyone 
And of course, thankfully nowadays, because everybody can have 99 plus percent HIV free babies through normal vaginal delivery through taking ARVs, you know, all women should have complete right to, to having that normal vaginal delivery, HIV free birth with total respect and support from all those around her. Yeah, thank thank you so much for highlighting so many so many things and how in some respects we've moved forward within HIV care to a, a different place. But that should be the rights of every woman. And also how globally we have took a huge step back with things that are happening across the pond that have massive ripple effects as well. So thank you for sharing that. And again, we'll probably invite you back, Alice, to talk more on that subject because I know it's something our listeners are extremely passionate about, how we advocate better um, in the positions that we have. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Well, one thing that I've always been really passionate about is working with communities and listening to and learning from people in communities rather than all this top-down stuff. And so I'd already been working in East Africa during the 80s. I was living and working in Kenya and Somalia. And so after I was diagnosed in 1992, I thought, well, how can I make sense of this diagnosis for myself? How can I make what I've learned so far from so many amazing people in different communities and how can I build on that in the context of HIV. And I've been specifically working on gender and generation and the power imbalances between different genders and different generations in communities and who has access to and control of goods and materials and services and who doesn't based on those socially prescribed hierarchies. And so I developed with colleagues in Uganda a program called Stepping Stones, which was designed really to develop care and respect and support for people living with HIV. And in those days, as I said, there was no treatment available. And a lot of young people, young men particularly, were coming home to die. But there was a lot of suspicion and mistrust and massive stigma around uh, those young people and the families who were trying to support them. And, And nobody was talking about it at all. And it felt very scary for everybody. So we developed this program, developing care, respect, support for people with HIV, developing communication and relationship skills, recognizing already that violence, again, this is an example of knowing things before there was a formal evidence base, but very clear already that violence in relationships was leading to people acquiring HIV and the spread of HIV. And so trying to find a way of reducing intimate partner violence in communities, reducing vulnerability of young women who often didn't have access to education, didn't have access to their own income, and were therefore often in a very vulnerable position and practicing transactional sex in order to even to fund their ability to keep going to school. And so really trying to think about these things in a very holistic way and working together with younger men, younger women, age 15 or so upwards, and also significant others. So the sugar daddies, for example, which were the unofficial relationships that a lot of the young girls were in, 
as well as the mothers and the fathers of the young men and the young women in communities separately and together to build bridges of mutual respect and collaboration and communication and understanding across the genders and across the generations so that there was much more of a sense of we're all in this together. The enemy is this virus which is affecting our communities. How can we work together and support one another to develop a resilience and an effective response to, to HIV, to violence against girls and women? And really to think holistically about all the different dimensions of our lives, including poverty, of course, which means that we're vulnerable to situations like this. And then it, it kind of took off. Yeah, so in that pilot study back in 1994, I think it was, 93 the pilot study was, and then we went back a year later in 1994, and clearly there had been a reduction in intimate partner violence in the community and also much, much better collaboration and coherence in the community. And income-generating programs had taken off amongst the different peer groups and there's an NGO working there and they, they noticed a marked difference in people's interest in income generation activities. So there were quite a few really positive indicators there and then the program was adapted and spread and has been yeah, made, people have used it in many different countries around the world. And if it's if it's adapted according to the principles and structure of the original program, then it, it really does seem to do what it says, <laughs> do what it's supposed to, which is reduce intimate partner violence and really build community cohesion. Thank you for sharing that amazing um, piece of work with us, Alice. I will make sure that there is a link um, to, to that work in the show descriptions for our audience to, to explore further. So, so, so thank you for sharing that. If I could just add a bit more about that, would that be okay? Of course, yeah, please do. Well, one of the things that those women back then were saying to us was, this is great, but what do we tell our children? You know, this has helped us to develop communication and relationships skills and we are able to talk more effectively with our children about some of these things but we'd still really love some more help with that so between 2012 and 2016 we then developed what we call stepping stones with children and we worked with colleagues in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania to do this and we developed this stepping stones with children program designed for use with orphaned and other vulnerable children living with HIV and, and their siblings who are deeply affected or touched by HIV aged 5 to 8 and 9 to 14 and their caregivers because we could see that there was just such a huge challenge for so many caregivers who had lost their own children perhaps from like grannies who'd lost their own children through age-related illness and then were left with so many mouths to feed and the little children, of course, were grief-stricken because they'd lost their, their, a parent. Um, they didn't really know what was happening to them. They being told to take these pills, didn't know why they needed to take them all the time. So just so much secrecy and, and grief and just inability to cope. So we created this program, which was really designed to support caregivers to understand much more what was going on with the children and understand that the, the so-called naughty behavior was, of course, poor children acting out out of their own grief and lack of understanding of what had happened to them. So supporting caregivers with positive parenting skills, 
with understanding child development, child brain development, and with addressing grief and bereavement of the children, as well as a whole range of sexual and reproductive health, comprehensive sexuality education, all of which is age-appropriate. And the children have really, really loved this program. They've loved learning about their own brain development at different stages and the caregivers likewise. And we've had some really positive results from that pilot compared with the control. There was a significant increase in the body weights of the children as well as their CD4 counts. So it showed basically that their adherence to their ARVs had improved. We absolutely didn't insist that any of the caregivers should have to tell the children about the HIV status because we totally believed, and this was vindicated, that actually there shouldn't be any coercion there, but rather by working with the caregivers in a supportive way, they would then be able to decide for themselves if and when they wanted to tell the children about it. And in fact, before the workshop had started, around, I think around 23% or so, had, maybe it was a little bit more, but certainly below 30% of the caregivers had told their children about their status. And by the end of the workshop, that had shot up to over 90% of the caregivers had decided, okay, now it's time to tell the children. And the children reported the marked reduction in violence against them. And also said that they were just so much happier now because my caregiver trusts me. My caregiver has told me about my status. And I've learned from this workshop that I can live a happy and healthy and fully productive life and yeah, I can do what I want in my life. And provided I take my ARVs, yeah, I can live life as I want to. So we've been really happy that there's been a real sense of overcoming those adverse childhood experiences that the children had all experienced and the trauma of the secrecy and the death and so on. And really building resilience across the community there, as well as really seeing post-traumatic growth and really seeing those children and young people thriving. Just such a phenomenal story there, Alice, and great testament to the, the fabulous work that you're doing. So so thank you so much for sharing that great work with our listeners. And again, I will make sure that there is a full signpost so in the show description so people can learn more about that because it, it feels just listening to you that there's loads of lessons that we can can learn um, embracing that work in the work that we, we do so thank you so much for sharing that with us We've alluded to during the duration of the podcast that you've been involved in HIV care for a long time. I'm just wondering if you had any thoughts on what the next chapter of HIV care for women may look like. Well, first of all, beyond the clinic, (laughs) and then to go back to the clinic perhaps, I mean, one of the things that I think is just so important that we've really learned over the years, and I've mentioned that violence against women is just such a huge 
issue in the context of HIV. And I would say that it's also like a, in a sense, it's a comorbidity. You know, we recognize that TB and malaria are comorbidities of HIV, but nobody ever talks about violence against women as a comorbidity. And it doesn't mean that every single woman living with HIV has also experienced violence. But in the same way, we also know that obviously HIV isn't always associated with TB and malaria, and yet those are recognized as very significant comorbidities where they exist. So I think that in the same way, if we think about violence against women, there's been a huge amount of work globally on violence against women, not in the context of HIV. And in fact, British government has been instrumental in funding quite a lot of what it calls what works And over the years, the evidence is very clear that community-based approaches to violence against women reduction can be effective and that violence against women is preventable through community-based programs. And the work that's been done has made it clear what particular types of programs work. And we're very happy that our Stepping Stones programs very much fit into the evidence around what it is that works and what doesn't work. But what we've also been doing, we at Stepping Stones have collaborated with other creators of other programs that have an evidence base that show that they work. And together we created a platform called the CUSP Collective. CUSP stands for Community for Understanding Scale-Up because it's one thing for something to work as a pilot in a community, but then obviously people want it to be scaled up, literally. And unfortunately, a lot of the work that has taken place on this, again, it's been very much from a top-down perspective, imagining that you can have your local shell station and have a replication of that shell station in every city of the world and that you would walk in there or drive in there and it would all look identical. And that might work for your international replications of garages or petrol stations or even supermarkets across the UK. They all look the same or whatever. But what we know now very much from our own many years of experience between us is that that's absolutely not the case when it comes to trying to replicate community programs And instead, what we've done is we've developed what we called our feminist scale, our feminist perspective on meaningful scale. And in fact, again, there's an evidence base for this, which goes back to an article which was published in 2012 by a couple of researchers called Thun and Weldon in the American Political Science Review, which shows that in their study across 70 countries, across 40 years, that the one single factor which reduced violence against women in those countries was a vibrant, independent women's rights movement. And that's such a fascinating study because that was a massive amount of information and data that they drew on. And that vibrant, independent women's rights movement is so rarely funded in any country because governments see that as a threat to their status quo and increasingly so as around the world we can see that women's rights are very much under threat again as we go back to Roe v Wade and yet what we see as critical is that actually what would work in terms of spreading programs like our own that are seen to work effectively in a community is by funding women's rights networks to actually do what they want to do to make use of programs like ours 
in their own communities and to spread them from community to community through their own networks rather than having top-down international NGOs coming in or international development corporations. And so we've really been calling on donors and governments and others in positions of power and authority over what happens to funds, really to be thinking again about how most effectively to take things to scale. So, uh, yeah, our CUSP collective work around feminist scale is something which I think would be really, uh, this applies to women living with HIV, obviously, as much as anyone else or young people living with HIV. And of course, men living with HIV, anybody to be really thinking about the importance of having community-driven, community-led approaches, taking things to scale. So that's what's beyond the clinic door. And so much of that often just isn't recognized by healthcare providers who often haven't been trained in thinking about, well, what's happening beyond the clinic door in the community and how can we best support those things to happen? So that was one thing that I was thinking about in relation to communities in general. So one thing that I feel has come out so strongly over more recent years, again, in relation to an evidence base is the importance of trauma-aware care. And on purpose, I'm calling it trauma-aware care rather than trauma-informed care. And they're similar. The idea about this is that if healthcare workers are trained to be non-judgmental and to understand the consequences of things, for instance, the long-term effects across our lifespans of if we've experienced adverse childhood experiences or if we've experienced some kind of trauma in our lives and we're suffering from post-traumatic stress, there is a clear evidence base now that these can have lifelong consequences for us in terms of looking after ourselves, in terms of our health-seeking abilities, in terms of our ability to keep going with education or in terms of employment. And as I've already described, the effects of intimate partner violence on women's agency. And it's just so, so important for healthcare providers to have the training and to be properly understanding about these effects on the person they see in front of them. And so if the person they see in front of them isn't turning up on time or is basically sitting there staring into space or or whatever, isn't behaving in the way they want them to. The healthcare professional is the professional in the room who then needs to be trained to understand, okay, what's going on here for this person? How can I support this person to feel more at ease or to feel to, to meet them where they are, which is very possibly not in the clinic at all, but maybe in the local playground or whatever, a place where the young person might be feeling safer or the woman might be feeling safer. And the reason why we talk about trauma-aware care rather than trauma-informed care is that so often a woman coming to clinic has got all kinds of fears and anxieties in her head, but it shouldn't be her responsibility to have to explain all of that to the healthcare provider to say, well, I've had this, well, I've had that, well, I've been taking drugs or I use alcohol or whatever. None of that should have to be explained to the healthcare provider. The healthcare provider should be adequately trained and supported to understand that if and when the woman feels 
a certain level of trust in that healthcare provider, that that information might come out in its own time as the trust and relationship develops. But that the healthcare provider should just be aware that those sorts of things might be there in this person's history that maybe they're feeling deeply ashamed about. Maybe they're feeling anxious that if I tell the healthcare provider this, she'll take my children away from me and then I'll be even more distraught. There may be all kinds of reasons why a woman may not, you know, in the context of the UK often, women are terrified that maybe they might be thrown out of the country if they share too much with the healthcare provider. And so this is why we feel that it's just so important for healthcare providers to be given that training in trauma-aware care and to, to be trained in basic communication skills like, hello, my name is... How would you like me to help you today? The first encounter with health staff is so critical to the whole care pathway and none more so than in relation to, to HIV and to talking about violence. I remember when I was first diagnosed, my GP, when she told me, the first thing she said to me was, can I give you a hug? And in those days, it was really scary still. People thought that maybe, do you remember the whole thing around Princess Diana actually shaking hands with someone with HIV? It made global headlines. And so the fact that she was offering to hug me, I mean, the hug in itself was kind of radical enough, but she was instantly putting control back into my hands by saying, can I give you a hug? She wasn't saying, let me give you a hug, which would have been kind enough as it was. but can I give you a hug? She was offering me the option to say, no, I don't want to be hugged, which was just so incredibly kind and thoughtful of her. And I mean, she just, she was just made of amazing compassion. But I think that these are also things which can be taught to healthcare providers to provide a service which is really trying to help them to think themselves into the shoes of the person sitting in front of them. Thank you, Alice. You've mentioned so many wonderful things. And throughout this podcast and our discussion together, I've been busy making notes and kind of thinking about what I could do next. Um, so I'm just wondering, you, you have obviously alluded to some of the things that um, any healthcare professionals could do, such as become more trauma aware. And that's something that HIV Matters, we're really passionate about, thinking about this trauma awareness and how we, we work from that place of compassion, as you've just beautifully illustrated but for our listeners out there is there anything that you could maybe suggest that we may be able to do um, to help um, support this moving forward this next chapter for women forward well I mean all of you healthcare providers if any of you are doing your own research it would be fantastic if you could find that Imperial College film that I mentioned earlier about the fantastic advantages of co-production and ensure that any research that you're doing that you reach out to women living with HIV and get them on board as a part of your research committee from the get-go through to co-authorship and also, the great irony is that women living with HIV often just don't have the resources to get to these international AIDS meetings, even though they're all talking about us. And it's only through, as a co-presenter, having your abstract accepted that you have any remote chance of getting a scholarship. 
So um, basically, women living with HIV are excluded from the conferences because if they don't get a scholarship, they can't afford to go anyway, quite apart from all the visa fiasco that we heard about in Canada. So it would just be so much better if you were able to involve us in your research throughout the process. You will find it an enriching experience. It's not without its bumps along the way, but it's all part of the learning process. And the research that you do and that the findings that will come out of it will be so much more meaningful and relevant to women in our lives in terms of creating policies that actually work for us and programs that are meaningful and effective and sustainable in terms of making the world better for all of us. It's a win-win. <laughs> and then also, if, if any of you are involved in training healthcare providers in your own hospitals or clinics, if you can do something to institute a policy around mandatory trauma-aware care for all healthcare providers, especially frontline healthcare providers, that would be awesome. Also, in areas of high prevalence especially, but not only, just to be aware that so many of your own healthcare providers may also be living with HIV and may feel desperately lonely and terrified that somebody might realize that they are and that they might be out of a job or that maybe their partner is and they're looking after a sick partner at home but don't tell anybody. It would just be so wonderful if there was actually more recognition of the presence of HIV or the presence of violence against women amongst your fellow healthcare providers amongst your fellow researchers and just a sense of recognizing it's not just people out there it's 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 people everywhere and anything that you can do to improve that recognition and mutual care and respect and support for people in your own working communities and environments would just be wonderful Thank you so much for sharing your time and experiences with us, Alice. It's been wonderful. So this part of the podcast that I equally enjoy as, as well as the main discussion. I'm just wondering if you could share with our listeners something that you do as part of your self-care. <laughs> okay, so I'm really lucky because I live next to some beautiful woods. And so I go walking in the woods every day. I, I practice forest bathing before it became known as a thing. Yeah, I'm so lucky because the woods are just amazing and, yeah, full of so much. They're just so beautiful to look at and to, to watch the seasons changing and just all of those sort of sensory things going on around me, all of the colors changing, what I can see, what I can smell, what I can feel what I can hear, what I can taste. It's having blackberries at present. It's blackberry season and just a fabulous blackberries en route. And then remembering to breathe regularly and meditation and practicing. I've got a daily meditation practice where I focus a lot on my breathing. So those are really things which help. Thank you. I've got a lovely image now of you in the forest observing all that nature and, you know, that passing of seasons just is, is phenomenal. So thank you for sharing that. Are you able to share with us a book that you've been reading recently? Well, actually, if you don't mind, there's a couple of things. First of all, I'm a really keen podcast listener. 
and one of the podcast series I'm really enjoying and wholly recommend are Conversations with Annalisa Barbieri. She's a Guardian columnist on relationships issues and also on chocolate. <laughs> and she's got her own podcast series, which I think you can find anywhere. And they're just so fantastic because they're about life, love, sex, relationships, bereavement, grief, trauma keeping our own boundaries, elderly relations with dementia, people with issues of addiction, intimacy, blended families, you name it. And she just talks to the, to the most amazing people who are, are working on these things. And they're just so informative and, again, really compassionate podcasts. So I would definitely recommend them to anyone who's interested in that sort of thing. And then there are so many books to recommend, but one that I read earlier this year, which I absolutely adore, is called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, who is an ecologist at the State University of New York. And she's also a member of the Potawatomi Native Indigenous American group. And this is just such a fabulous book where she's talking about indigenous wisdom ancient wisdom passed down to her through generations by her ancestors, um, scientific knowledge and teaching what plants can teach us. And this uh, goes back to me in the woods. And uh, it, so in this book, she's basically, she describes how she's braiding together indigenous ways of knowing scientific knowledge, which she has acquired through Western education, and also the story of her own journey as an indigenous woman who's trained as a Western scientist, uh, navigating her way through that in the context of her own ancient indigenous knowledge and trying to weave it all together in, as she puts it, in service to what matters most, which is basically trying to save the planet from ecological collapse. And yeah, it's just such a fabulous book, which is, you know, I just wholly recommend to everyone. Thank you. I'm definitely going to be checking that out. I was busily making a note of that. So thank you so, so much. And finally, a huge question to end on. Um, but if you had a magic wand and if time, money and resources weren't an issue, what would you like to change or seem done differently? Well, it's been such a joy working with the CUSP Collective that I mentioned earlier, the Community for Understanding Scale Up. And last year, last December, we brought out a thought piece on feminist scale. And we also had a webinar about it earlier this year. And a part of all of that is quite apart from the importance of supporting women's rights movements to build feminist scale and the critical importance of funding for the women's rights movements is actually the critique of the whole Western approach to the way that we are focused on relentless growth and GDP as the global index for development and how fundamentally flawed this is because we're completely overstretching everything in the planet. And so uh, what I would say would be it would just be so wonderful if we could actually completely replace GDP with a global happiness index instead, because books like Braiding Sweetgrass and so many others are all pointing to how actually happiness isn't about wealth. It isn't about material wealth. It's about connections. It's about relationships. It's about trust, which is what I've been talking about with you, Michelle. And there are clear alternative models as, for instance, we can develop a sustainable economic 
model based on the ecology of the changing seasons. And again, it comes back to the woods, which I'm so lucky to live right by, that everything grows and then falls back with the changing seasons and the beautiful flowers and leaves then become the compost, which creates the rich nutrition for the new growth in the new season. So our cusp thought piece was all about looking at the donut model, which was created by Kate Rayworth and her colleagues, of a model of sustainable growth for the planet, where we all just live within actually what is sustainable. We don't take out more from the earth than we can put back. And it's just such a fascinating model, which is being used increasingly in many different cities in different parts of the world. And even some countries are starting to take it on so that everything, all policies in those cities or other areas are actually linked into this donut model of ecological growth within a sustainable framework. And we so need it because we can all see the effects of climate change, the effects of COVID, which is basically a zoonotic disease, which is, and things like COVID are going to be on the increase with increasing numbers of extreme weather events and huge increasing pressure on environments and so on, which make them more vulnerable, which means that zoonotic diseases will increase, etc. You know, it's all interconnected and we just can't afford to ignore it anymore. Thank you so much, Alice, for taking the time to speak with us today on the HIV Matters podcast. It's been an absolute privilege to spend this time with you. So thank you so much. Oh, well, the pleasure's all mine, Michelle. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. Thank you to today's guest and to you for listening to this episode of HIV Matters. I don't know if you're anything like me and are busy writing down the lovely book suggestions made in our show. That's why HIV Matters have teamed up with bookshop.org to bring all these fantastic books to you in one unique place. To find out more about this and how to access the bookstore, please check out today's show descriptions. Today's edition of HIV Matters has been brought to you via an unrestricted educational grant from Vive Healthcare and Gilead Sciences. Gilead and Vive have had no input into guests or topics. HIV Matters is the official podcast of the National HIV Nurses Association. For more information about the National HIV Nurses Association, head over to www.nivna.org. Thanks again for listening to our show. We hope to see you next time and together we can make a difference.